Our Father and our God, as we come to hear your word this morning, we pray that you would grant ears to hear and responsive hearts, but even more, Father, that you would take words that come out of my mouth and anoint them. You know yourself the weakness of this particular sheep, but we pray, Father, that you would overcome those weaknesses and accomplish your purposes in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. We are concluding a series this morning entitled The DNA of TVC. We have been exploring what are the foundational characteristics of the Village Church that make this local congregation who we are. What elements define us? What is, in fact, our DNA? And in this series, we've concentrated primarily on the core elements of our mission statement. We are building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope in Jesus Christ. And those core elements are forgiveness and purpose and hope. We spoke about what led us to adopt each of those elements, how in this community there was, first of all, a need to become assured of our relationship with God. That in Jesus Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them that only in Jesus Christ could we find forgiveness for our sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul says in Romans 3. That if we do nothing else as a congregation, we need to be a people of forgiveness. That even if we've gone to church all of our lives, we can only have forgiveness if we trust in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone who has done all of those things, those works on our behalf. That any kind of trust in ourselves, including the naive notion that we've been good enough people to stand in the presence of the altogether holy and altogether righteous God would lead us nowhere but to destruction. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the reason why forgiveness is one of our core elements in this mission is that uh, as a community of seniors, we don't have much time to get this figured out. There's an urgency about being a people of forgiveness. And we also mentioned that it's not just forgiveness in a vertical dimension that is critical. Not only is there an urgency in making sure that we're forgiven by God, but there's an urgency in making sure that we are a forgiving people, that broken relationships need to be reconciled horizontally, as it were, with our family or with our friends, or I dare say even with our enemies. So forgiveness is a critical element in our mission. We seek to be a forgiven people and we seek to be a forgiving people. And then we examine the issue of purpose, how the issue of purpose looms large for those of us who are in a retirement community. So much of what we found to be our purpose in life is now in our rearview mirror. What got us out of bed every morning, uh, what vocations defined who we are, those things are usually now in the past. But we must live in the present. So what is our purpose now? And so many of us need to redefine our purpose in our retirement years and to redefine it in relationship to our life in Jesus Christ. And we looked at Colossians 3.17, which said, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
And then finally, we spoke of what it meant to be a people of hope. We're, we're coming down the home stretch of life, and that home stretch has its pitfalls. It has its challenges, its tribulations. But if we truly trust in Jesus Christ alone, we have hope for an eternity of glory in his presence. So that as we approach these challenges, we need to be able to exude the joy of the Lord and a spirit of thanksgiving in a way that will be a witness to all around us of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. So our mission, building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope in Jesus Christ is central to who we are, central to our DNA. And we also sprinkled in these messages our core values as we seek to be a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope. We are committed to a set of core values. We, are, we value the glory of God demonstrated by our passionate devotion to exalting his sovereignty and his majesty. One of the chief things we spoke about that helps us to define our purpose is the glory of God. We value the Word of God, demonstrated by our reverential submission to its authority. That, that's been implicit throughout this series, as nothing that we focused on was without explicit support from the Scriptures. We value the sufficiency of Christ, demonstrated by our resting confidence in His all-inclusive work. And of course, that's central to our mission because our mission, building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope is always in Jesus Christ. We value the ministry of the Holy Spirit, demonstrated by our acknowledgement that his anointed empowerment is essential for holy living and fruitful service. The work of Christ, has, or work of the Spirit, has been critical to our capacity to fulfill this mission. We value the great commission of Christ, demonstrated by our active participation in working toward its completion. We've, we've seen repeatedly how our mission is integral to the mission of Christ himself that he gave to the church for all ages to make disciples of all nations. A core value that we'll be emphasizing beginning next week at our Global Impact Week and how this congregation has demonstrated its commitment to the Great Commission and how we touch literally every corner of the globe for Jesus through the work of this congregation. And we value the body of Christ demonstrated by our wholehearted commitment to the church, the people of God. And that's what we mean when we say we are committed to building a community. And then finally, we value prayer demonstrated by our unreserved dependence on the practice of prayer. And we've seen how prayer infuses every facet of the diamond which is our community. Now I've decided that in this concluding message in this series uh, to focus on building a community which is in essence the building of the body of Christ in this place and to do it by focusing on a specific ministry of the village church. That's the ministry of shepherding. The ministry of shepherding has naturally and organically grown out of our mission and out of our core values. It is a ministry in which shepherds are assigned to every member of our congregation. And many in our congregation who are not officially members who desire to have a shepherd also can have one and many do. Shepherding is more and more central to our DNA, our culture, to who we are as the people of God in this place. There are a number of metaphors that the Bible uses for the church. We find it consistently in the scriptures. The church is called, for instance, the body of Christ in numerous places. The church is also called the temple of God in the New Testament. The church is called the bride of Christ in Revelation. 
The church is called the family of God as God is our father and our fellow brothers and sisters are also included in that family. And there are other metaphors that the scriptures use for the church, the body of Christ. But arguably, the most dominant metaphor for the church in the Bible is that we are a community of sheep. We're a community of sheep. That's the dominant metaphor, and that we are led by shepherds, sheep and shepherds. This description goes all the way back into the Old Testament. Moses was a shepherd before God called him to go back into Egypt and, and rescue the people of Israel from their bondage. David, the king of, the great king of Israel, was a shepherd. And he was then called to shepherd the people of God as they moved into the kingdom period. The prophets use the sheep-shepherd designation in characterizing the Old Testament people of God. Indeed, calling down judgment on Israel and Judah for their failure as shepherds and as sheep. And of course, Jesus himself uses the sheep metaphor in many of his parables to describe the people of God. But you might wonder, why sheep? Why sheep? Why should sheep be such a pervasive identifier for the people of God throughout the Bible? Well, I want you to watch this and perhaps this will be an explanation. <laughs> so you got an instant replay even before the game tonight. Almost don't even need to say any more than that, do you? Bottom line, we are sheep because we need help. We are sheep because we need to be rescued over and over again. Now, who are the sheep? Well, first of all, the sheep are those who belong to Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you're sheep. All who are forgiven by him are sheep. All who have a saving relationship with Christ are sheep. Uh, they are all those who have heard the voice of Jesus and have responded to his call. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep are those whose names are called by Jesus himself. The sheep are those who follow Jesus, who follow the voice because they know his voice. Jesus says when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Jesus, you see, is the owner of the sheep. He is no hired hand who, when the sheep are in trouble, could care less about their welfare. He says, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, you need to know that not everyone is among the sheep of Jesus. Not everyone belongs to Jesus. Jesus himself distinguishes between those who believe him and those who do not. He responds, for instance, sharply to the Jewish leaders who challenged him in chapter 10 of John. He says this, he answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus goes on to say that his sheep are secure in him, that between his own protection and that of the Father, his sheep are never going to get stuck forever in that ditch. He says, I gave them, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The sheep are those whom the Father has taken out of the world and given to Christ. Uh, Jesus prays in John 17, you have given him authority that is the Son of Man over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you, Father, have given him. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, you, Father, gave me, Jesus, out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. The sheep are those whom Christ has bought with his own blood by his death on the cross. Paul says that you were bought with a price. We find in Revelation this, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So then, dear friends, if you follow Jesus, if you trust Jesus alone savingly, you are his sheep. Now, what do the sheep need? Well, the first thing to notice is that the sheep need a lot. You figured that out from the video, didn't you? Sheep are, by definition, needy, and we are a needy people. The trouble is, what we sheep think we need and what we actually need are not always the same thing. We think we need material possessions. We think we need health and wealth. We really need, however, righteousness. And only Jesus can provide the righteousness that we need. Uh, we have studied Romans 3 in recent months. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Listen, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We also really need peace with God. By nature, you see, we are enemies with God. But only the wrath-removing sacrifice of Christ resolves the enmity and grants us peace with God. What is the wrath-removing sacrifice called? Propitiation. Very good. And that's why Paul wrote, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Therefore, Paul says in Romans 5, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So sheep need all kinds of things that only Jesus can provide. Sheep need, for instance, rest and refreshment. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Sheep need to be led in order to stay on the path and out of the ditch. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Sheep need to have hope and comfort, the hope and comfort that only a shepherd can provide. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sheep need protection from evil. You prepare a table before me 
in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. But above all, sheep need to be in the presence of the shepherd. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then, of course, the sheep need to be fed. That's what Jesus tells Peter that he must do for Jesus' sheep. In Jesus' threefold restoration of Peter following the resurrection, which takes Peter back to his threefold denial of Jesus, Jesus tells Peter that if he loved Jesus, he will feed Jesus' lambs. He will feed Jesus' sheep. And of course, that doesn't involve a literal feeding, like with oats or grain or something like that. That means feeding with the Word of God. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So who then is the shepherd? Well, we've already seen that the answer to that question, haven't we? We've seen that the shepherd is Jesus, and, and there are a number of ways his shepherding is expressed. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he is the door of the sheep. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. A couple of verses later, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is talking about a certain kind of sheep pen, the kind of sheep pen that's out in the country where you might have an enclosure which is defined only by a pile of rocks with only one space for an opening to sheep for sheep to come in and out, in which only one shepherd's sheep spend the night, and the shepherd would literally lie down in that opening, in that door of the sheep pen, and only allow his own sheep to enter and not to allow any to wander out and find ditches. And then Jesus says, not only is he the shepherd, he's the good shepherd. He says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And as Jesus is the good shepherd, he is the shepherd of more than one sheepfold. He will bring together into one flock other sheepfolds. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's speaking there of not just being the shepherd for the Jewish sheep, but also of Gentile sheep. But Jesus is not just the good shepherd. He's also identified in the New Testament as the great shepherd. Hebrews chapter 13, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. He's not just good, but he's great. And finally, Jesus is not just the good shepherd. He's not just the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. In 1 Peter chapter 5, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive unfading crown, the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd is the word archipoimen, in the Greek, arch or arch is where we come to the English word that is related to it, means the head or the chief or the first. So we think of the archbishop, for instance, that would be the chief or the head bishop. Poiman is the word for shepherd. So Jesus, more than anyone else, is the chief shepherd. He's the arch shepherd. And he's said to be the overseer of your souls in 1 Peter chapter 2. So he cares for your souls. He cares for your spirits. He cares for your minds. 
He cares for your wills. He cares for your emotions. He even cares for your bodies. So Jesus is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And he's the chief shepherd. Now, if Jesus is the chief shepherd, the head shepherd, that implies that there are other shepherds. There are under shepherds. Who then are the under shepherds? Well, first of all, according to the New Testament, the apostles were shepherds. Uh, Most notably was, of course, Peter, to whom Jesus gave the responsibility of feeding the sheep. But Peter was not alone in that responsibility. All the apostles had the responsibility to care for the fledgling New Testament church. They cared for the body of Christ. They fed the body of Christ. They fed the body of Christ through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. But not only that, not only are apostles shepherds, pastors were called to shepherd the flock of God. So in Ephesians chapter 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Shepherds are pastors in other translations. That's because the word for shepherds or pastors is the Greek word poimen, which you've already been introduced to, which literally means shepherd. So a pastor is by definition a shepherd. And the primary way pastors do their shepherding is by teaching. In fact, in that passage, the Greek construction in Ephesians 4.11 is not just pastor and teacher, but pastor-teacher. It's shepherd-teacher. It's poimen didaskalos, pastor-teacher, shepherd-teacher. And that's, dear friends, after all these years, why I do what I do. In case you hadn't figured that out yet. Whatever else you think a pastor is supposed to do, feeding the sheep is the primary task of the pastor, and especially this pastor. It's my primary responsibility. And by the way, my primary responsibility is to provide good, solid, nutritious food. Yes, I might throw in a little ice cream from time to time, but you can be assured that you're going to get meat and potatoes and vegetables when you come here. You can't survive on sweets and candy all the time. That's why you have to eat propitiation every now and then. (laughs) Just think of propitiation as spinach or as broccoli. But according to the New Testament, pastors weren't to do all the shepherding themselves. The elders of the local church were also called on to help pastor the church to shepherd the flock of God. So 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And then he tells the elders this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples into the flock. Uh, There is so much to unpack in these verses, and, and we regularly call attention to it with our elders, but shepherding is the primary responsibility of the elders in the local church, overseeing the preaching and the teaching ministries, including the worship services, the classes, the Bible studies, the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper and the small groups, That is what the elders are called upon to do, and that's what they do in this congregation. The elders are called upon also to be examples to the flock of God. 
They need to be spiritually qualified as elders, according to the qualifications that are addressed in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. That doesn't mean they're perfect people, but it does mean that they are men of God, men worth emulating in their speech and in their conduct. Now, we at the Village Church are committed to the shepherding ministry of the elders. It's really part of our DNA. It's part of the way we value the body of Christ, part of the way we build a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope. And we do that in a couple of ways. We have a board of governing elders, and they meet once a month, and they consider the spiritual ministries of the Village Church. And we have another group called shepherding elders who assist the governing elders in caring for members of our congregation. And let me tell you, you are very fortunate here at the Village Church, more than you know, because we have a number of spiritually qualified people, many of whom have served as, as pastors and elders in other churches who care deeply about the church and who care deeply about this local church, the Village Church and who care about each one of you. And they're all assigned people. Often they're assigned because they have an ongoing relationship with those to whom they are assigned. But they are assigned people for whom they are committed to pray for regularly and to contact from time to time to see how you are doing and what things you might need as sheep. And if additional contact is appropriate by our, our pastoral staff, they'll, they'll make contact with Pastor Don or with me or Tim or with Garth or one of the other assistant chaplains if they find themselves in one of the healthcare facilities. Let me tell you something, dear friends. I would never want to be a member of a church without someone like that praying for me, caring about me, checking on me from time to time, seeing how I'm doing. It's the responsibility that the Bible gives to the elders of a local church. There are certainly others who assist in this kind of caring. Sometimes the wives of the elders are participating, often the deaconesses, especially those who visit women in the Larson help in that way. The assistant chaplains who care for residents in the ALFs also help in that regard. But ultimately the elders are called upon to shepherd the flock of God. Now, we said a lot about shepherds and elders as shepherds, but what about the sheep? What responsibilities do the sheep have? And since our DNA involves our valuing the Word of God, let's see what the Word of God says. In this passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, it describes the responsibility of the sheep. And the sheep are contrasted with the elders in this passage. The sheep are called those who are younger. Okay, so you have to, you know, reinterpret that slightly. I'll tell you, I'm always delighted when some of you come up to me and they say, now, young man. Okay, so consider that being applied to you, you who are younger. So here's what the text says. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders. The word for that is hupotasso. It's a military term of submission to authority. Place yourself, in other words, under the elders. Respond to their call when they contact you. 
Then it says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So humility is one of the things that the sheep are called upon to do. You are sheep. You need shepherds, and pretending you don't is not humility. Then it says this, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, know where the ditches are. Resist him, it says, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So it says, dear friends, you're not alone in your suffering. You're in a fellowship of sufferers with brothers and sisters, not only here in this community, but all across the world. And then Peter says this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So yes, sheep have responsibilities. One responsibility is simply to be willing to be shepherded. If you're not already a member of the Village Church, um, let me ask you a couple of questions. Is this where you're being fed, the Word of God? Is this the place that you would call your, your spiritual home? Is this the place where uh, people are caring for your souls? Then what are you waiting for with this membership thing? But even if you're not a member, you can still have a shepherd. All you need to do is talk to Pastor Don and he'll connect you with one. And if you know an elder and want to get connected with someone you know, then let Don know and he'll make that happen for you. In other words, be willing to be shepherded. Groucho Marx used to say, I would never join an organization that would have me as a member. <laughs> now that's a good punchline. It's a little self-deprecating humor by one of the great humorists of all times. But no, no, the local church is the opposite. I would say I would never join a church that did not have someone who cared enough for my soul that they prayed for me and connected with me. And that's this church. That's part of the DNA of the village church. That's who we are. Heavenly Father, as sheep we come before you humbly casting ourselves on your mercy and grace, knowing that you've provided right in this church ways in which you care for us. These are human beings. It's not perfectly done, Father, but it's the same kind of thing that you and your sovereign care for us have appointed those who will serve in your stead and care for the people of God in this place. We praise you and thank you for that. Give us all grace, enable us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.